This afternoon, we will look at three separate questions and answers from our catechism. Regarding our task as prophets. And the first is from Lord's Day 12. Question and answer 32. There we find God's word summarized. Why are you called a Christian? Because I am a member of Christ by faith, and thus share in his anointing, so that I may as prophet confess his name, as priest present myself a living sacrifice of thankfulness to him, and as king fight with a free and good conscience against sin and the devil in this life, and hereafter reign with him eternally over all creatures. We turn ahead to Lord's Day 31. And to question and answer 84. How is the kingdom of heaven opened and closed by the preaching of the gospel? According to the command of Christ, the kingdom of heaven is opened when it is proclaimed and publicly testified to each and every believer that God has really forgiven all their sins for the sake of Christ's merits, as often as they by true faith accept the promise of the gospel. The kingdom of heaven is opened when it is proclaimed and testified to all unbelievers and hypocrites that the wrath of God and eternal condemnation rest on them as long as they do not repent. According to this testimony of the gospel, God will judge both in this life and in the life to come. And then finally, from the next Lord's Day, question and answer 86. Since we have been delivered from our misery by grace alone through Christ without any merit of our own, why must we yet do good works? Because Christ, having redeemed us by his blood, also renews us by his Holy Spirit to be his image, so that with our whole life we may show ourselves thankful to God for his benefits, and he may be praised by us. Further, that we ourselves may be assured of our faith by its fruits, and that by our godly walk of life we may win our neighbors for Christ. In response to the word of God this afternoon, we'll sing hymn 19, stanzas 1, 3, 5, and 6. Brothers and sisters in Christ, prophets are important to our God. If you look at the Old Testament, this jumps out at you. Book after book is either focused on a certain prophet's ministry, or it is written by a prophet, or it contains all the various oracles of a prophet. There's the two books of Samuel. There's the massive books of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Daniel was a prophet. Even Moses was a prophet. And 
Let's not forget that whole collection of so-called minor prophets, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, and all the rest. Besides this, there were many other prophets, named and unnamed, who make brief appearances in Scripture. When we think of these Old Testament prophets, we think of men anointed with the Holy Spirit. We picture them as bold and fiery characters, and that they certainly were. These were men commissioned to bring the word of God. A prophet would speak whatever God commanded him to speak. And so these men addressed many different kinds of situations. These prophets would confront sin and rebellion. They would warn against temptation and complacency. They would foretell the judgment of foreign nations and foretell the judgment of Israel too. Whenever God wanted a message to be brought, he would do so through his prophets. And this meant sometimes the prophets had to speak at a great cost to themselves. The typical picture of an Old Testament prophet is that of a loner, shunned and scorned by those who didn't want to hear his message. But speak for God, these prophets would, even when it hurt. Think of Elijah, persecuted relentlessly by Ahab and Jezebel. Or think of Jeremiah, thrown into a deep pit to be forgotten and to die. Now, we shouldn't make their ministry out to be all that bad, for no matter how disturbing a message had to be shared, God almost always included also a word of salvation. You know how you can be reading one of the prophets, chapter after chapter of stern warnings and condemnations, threats of judgment and exile, when all of a sudden there's that message of hope. A remnant will return. The land will be renewed. The Messiah will come. What a privilege, then, these prophets also had to bring that message of God's amazing grace. Beloved, such prophets are not a thing of the past. Even Christ, our Lord, is a prophet, for he has fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption. And prophets remain important to the Lord. For now he wants that word of Christ to be heard by all. We might not look like those Old Testament men of the word, but as Christians, all of us are called as prophets. We too have been anointed with the Spirit. For us too, it might be a hard task, but it's work that God calls us to do. For we too have been given something to say to testify to the Lord at his salvation. That's a privilege that God allows us to have. And so that's our theme. As Christians, we have a prophetic task, speaking with our deeds and speaking with our words. Prophets in the Old Testament tended to stick out. They were called from all walks of life, from the priesthood, from farming, from business, from the royal courts in Jerusalem, But once they became prophets, their identity was changed in a dramatic way. Suddenly, this was who they were. They were prophets. And at once, their entire life was devoted to making known God's word. From among the people, they were called to serve in that unique capacity. They stood apart so that nothing would get in the way of what they had to say. 
And here already we see a vital aspect of being a prophet of the Lord. Being a prophet is not a part-time vocation. It's not done only when we're feeling up to the task. Nor is it an optional calling, one that we can ignore or maybe pass on to others. No, this is who we are as servants of God. Think of those familiar words from Lord's Day 12. Why are you called a Christian? And then the answer, because I'm a member of Christ by faith and thus share in his anointing so that I may as prophet confess his name. We'll get back to that idea of confessing the name of Christ a bit later. For now, we take note of how central prophethood is to our identity. The Catechism says, because we belong to Christ, because we believe in Christ, we must be prophets of Christ. And yes, this means sticking out. It means being a prophet with your whole life with all that you are. Many of our unbelieving fellow citizens will see this. They will recognize that there are good things that Christians do. We try to be honest in business. We try to be kind to people on our street. We value faithfulness in marriage. We place an importance on hard work. We're dedicated to our families. We help the sick and needy. We even take a different attitude toward things like suffering and hardship and even death. Now, sometimes the quiet life of a regular Christian seems to attract very little attention at all. But at other times, and perhaps many of us have experienced this, unbelievers cannot ignore it. When they look at Christians and they see stable homes and friendly people and active churches They are struck by the testimony of our lives. It causes people to wonder, why the difference with these people? What's the reason for this unexpected kindness, this surprising confidence, this consistent happiness? That, beloved, is getting close to the heart of prophecy. Prophecy is pointing to the one who has called us. It's testifying to the one who has saved us. And that testimony begins very simply. It begins with our life. The Catechism speaks of this in question and answer 86. There, having shown that salvation is not earned by us in any way, the Catechism asks, why must we yet do good works? And the answer given, because Christ, having redeemed us by his blood, also renews us by his Holy Spirit be his image, so that by our godly walk of life, we may win our neighbors for Christ. Underline, if you will, the last phrase of that answer. Here's a third purpose for filling our days with words of kindness and acts of goodness, that by our godly walk of life, we may win our neighbors for Christ. This is what's been called the lifestyle evangelism. This is making known to others the message of the gospel, the evangel, not so much by preaching or handing out pamphlets, but by the character of our life, the activity of our daily existence. 
I think we all understand how this works. We certainly understand how it doesn't work. I still remember overhearing a conversation one time in a public place. A few young women were eagerly discussing the moral failures of their classmate. This fellow they all knew was such a liar. He was a backstabber and promiscuous too. And the juiciest part of this gossip, according to them, was that he always claimed to be a Christian. In church every Sunday. Well, so much for his religion. There's so much damage that a hypocritical Christian can do. A person might make no secret of the fact that he goes to church, that he believes in God, yet he might never get his life in line with his confession. And other people see this. Beloved, let's be aware that people around us will often look for this inconsistency, and they'll be glad when they find it. Nobody stands out quite so obviously as a false prophet. Yes, great damage can be done by us as Christians if we are hypocrites. For what's the value of our words if our actions don't back them up? What's the power of our faith if it has no effect on our life? When we do not demonstrate the real and living presence of God, we're almost giving people an excuse not to believe. Yet we must also speak of living prophetically as a true prophet. Through God's power, there is so much that a faithful Christian can do. There's so much that you can do in the humble and unique place that God has put you on this earth. The Catechism put that effect quite strongly. It said, by our godly walk of life, we may win our neighbor for Christ. A godly walk of life isn't just capable of drawing attention or getting compliments or inviting questions. Through the work of the Spirit, a godly walk of life is capable of winning someone for Christ, bringing them into those gates of salvation. And there's a host of biblical texts to support that truth. The footnote under question and answer 86 refers to a few of the most well-known. There's Matthew 5:13, you are the salt of the earth. Like salt does, we can enrich and preserve those around us. When our neighbors see how we live, when they experience our kindness, they can be benefited by that gospel that we profess. Or there's Matthew 5:14, you are the light of the world. Like a light in a dark room, our good deeds stand out in this present darkness. Make no mistake, people listen to our words. People see our conduct. People observe also what we place importance on. Imperfect and obscured it might be, but they see the light of our lives. That idea of light is also picked up on by Paul in Philippians 2. There he writes, do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God, without faults in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life 
see the connections that Paul makes in that passage. Being blameless and pure makes us shine like stars, radiant and obvious. And shining like stars, we hold out, he says, the word of life. That's the prophetic task, holding out the word of life. Like those prophets of old, we keep on pointing to the one who sent us. We serve as instruments in his hands. And this word we hold out is nothing less than the word of life. It's the word that brings salvation. The word that brings change. It's the word that brings life everlasting even to us. Yes, we know what this word can do. And so by broadcasting that same word, the catechism says, our neighbors can be one for Christ with the tools and the talents and the life that God has given. We can make known that gospel of Christ, the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. Beloved, this calls us to consider intensely the impact of our lives. Call it our spiritual footprint. God has put each of us in a certain place and position in this society, in this world. We all have our contacts through business and community and school and elsewhere. We all have our neighbors next door, across the street, or people that we come across as we do what we do. We have relationships and hundreds more potential relationships. God has given us a place, and we must fill that place as prophets of the Lord. Consider also what Paul said to the Colossians. At the end of his letter, he speaks briefly about the spread of the gospel, and he says that it's spread through him as an apostle, but it's also spread through each and every Christian. And that's why he instructs in verse 5, Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Be wise, first of all. That calls us to think about who we are and to think about where we are. When interacting with the people around us, our eyes need to be open to the opportunities that God gives. Too often we all forget that we are prophets. We don't see, we don't imagine how just a simple deed of kindness, a little gesture, a passing word, can speak such volumes to someone else. But God tells us for a reason. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders and make the most of every opportunity. So we consider a second point, that as prophets we speak with our words. People cannot believe something that they've never been told. That's not an insight I came up with myself. Just think of the questions asked in Romans 10. How can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? That is, if a sinner will be saved... He first needs to hear of Christ. 
No wonder in Matthew 10, Jesus sends out the 12 in this way. As you go, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. For if the people of Israel would receive their Messiah, they would first need to know their Messiah. And that same work continues today throughout the world. We read it in Lord's Day 31 about the keys of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is opened when it is proclaimed and publicly testified to each and every believer that God has really forgiven all their sins for the sake of Christ's merits as often as they, by true faith, accept the promise of the gospel. Now, when we hear about such an activity of preaching the gospel, we can't help but think of those assigned specifically to that task. We think of those apostles in the first century. We think of ministers and missionaries at work today. They have the training after all. They have the time. Those are the ones we think that really have the calling to spread the word through their preaching and teaching. And to be sure, such men have a vital task. It's a blessing to have people dedicated full time to that work of spreading the gospel. They can preach regularly. They can lead Bible studies. They can prepare teaching material for distribution, train future office bearers. And such full-time workers in the gospel need our strong support. We might want to be involved personally in local evangelism, but we shouldn't underestimate the importance of being supporters even of foreign missions even if that mission is being done in lands we've never visited, among people that we've never met. We're called to ensure that that work continues. Just think of how Paul pleads for the support of the Colossians. Though he wasn't in Colossae at the time, though he might have been on the other side of the Mediterranean, he needed, he says, their constant prayers. He writes verse 3 and 4 of that passage Pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly, as I should. This reminds us of the most basic and the most essential way of being involved in the work of mission and evangelism. It is prayer. Know the names of the missionaries that we support. And bring them before the Lord. Be informed of the struggles on the field and ask about their needs in prayer. In Paul's words, pray that God may open a door for their message, that they may proclaim it clearly. But having said that, we insist the work of gospel spreading is not work for places across the ocean alone or certain downtrodden areas of a city. Nor is gospel spreading just the work of paid professionals. A Christian theologian once wrote, a one-to-one approach initiated by every believer still holds the best promise of evangelizing the earth. Again, we need to be clear on that. Scripture's call is that evangelism is the work of each and every believer in that place where God has put him. 
We've already listened to the catechism on the value of our godly walk of life. But I think here that many prefer to leave it at that. We don't really want to start talking about the Bible with our neighbor. We don't really want to say what Christmas is all about. We hesitate to invite someone to church. No, we say it's much nicer to let our deeds do all the talking. But let's remember the Catechism and Lord's Day 12. What did it say? I am a member of Christ by faith and thus share in his anointing so that I may, as prophet, confess his name. Confessing is something done verbally. Yes, we are prophets serving as God's voice on the earth. Here the Catechism references Matthew 10. Jesus talking to his disciples about their task and they're saying, whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. That's an explicit, out loud activity. Acknowledge Jesus Christ. Just as our Lord exhorted a few verses before, what I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim it from the roofs. Yes, show, but then also tell the things that you know. And that calls us to take up those opportunities that we have for speaking up. Sometimes there will be occasions when we are asked quite directly about our faith. Someone can ask us out of the blue, why do you go to church? Or how do you know there is a God? Or why does God let bad things happen? Besides being asked directly, there are other times in conversation when the door is open for us to say a word. To say something about our hope but our purpose on the earth, to say something about God's love and God's power. We need to be ready for such moments. Think back to Colossians 4 where Paul said, Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. We need to be ready. For such moments. Having words seasoned with salt. That again is an echo of Jesus' words about being the salt of the earth. Being that good influence. Let your conversation be full of grace. Let also our words have that enlivening, that preserving effect. And do this, Paul says, so that you may know how to answer everyone. If we're really living as holy prophets, then those opportunities to speak will surely come. And when they do, we all have to fight that urge, that urge to turn and run away. You probably all remember situations we've faced when that good thought is running through our minds. Now this would be a great chance to say something about what I believe. Yet do we give an answer? Sometimes that moment of hesitation is all it takes for the opportunity to be lost. That calls us to prepare ourselves for such encounters. 
And again, prayer is vital preparation. Pray to God for wisdom and for courage. Pray to God for an understanding of and a sympathy for this person whom God has placed on your path. Indeed, before you can talk to people about God, you have to talk to God about people. In prayer, be ready to step forward. And also be ready to open your mouth in a meaningful way. Know how to answer everyone. What is it that we are going to say? We might like to point to Jesus' words in Matthew 10. There he said, When they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Perhaps we've sometimes taken that as an excuse for not knowing how to answer everyone. But Jesus said that to rule out our worry, not to downplay our preparation. It's true, we do not have to worry. Christ's Spirit will be guiding us as we speak. But our responsibility remains. Just imagine someone asked you to give a speech on an important topic. Or it was your turn to lead Bible study. You would never do it without preparation. You would never say, I'll just wing it. No, you would prepare yourself so that you would have something meaningful to say. In the same way, we ought to prepare ourselves for our prophetic task in this world. That means we should have a solid understanding of our faith. What can we say to others about who God is? What can we say to others about who Jesus Christ is? What can we say about creation, about the final judgment, about finding God's will? Preparing yourself also means being prepared to suffer as a prophet. That's how it always was in the Old Testament And that's how it still is today. Jesus said to his disciples, a student is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. That is, the greatest prophet was condemned and killed. And surely then they will not go easy on us, but they will mock and ridicule and scorn. No, we are prophets and being a prophet is not an easy task. How many times have we not let a good opportunity pass us by? How many times haven't we had that chance to speak of our Savior, yet we closed our mouths? But in spite of all our failings, we know that prophets are important to the Lord. God values his prophets. He forgives our shortcomings. He teaches us his truth And God strengthens us for that work that still remains. Beloved, let us then embrace our task as prophets in this world. Let us be wise in the way we act toward outsiders and make the most of every opportunity. Let our conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that we may know how to answer everyone. Yes, let us acknowledge Jesus Christ before men. 
that he may also acknowledge us before our Father in heaven. Amen.